You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, week three of the Book of Judges. Good to see you. Good to see you, Al, as you walk in. See, we got everybody online. You can see who's here. And uh, come on in, have a seat. We're carrying on in our journey through uh, the book of Judges. Some of you are, uh, are new. Uh, you're just joining us. And so that's okay. You can, we're only a little ways into the book of Judges. And the other two talks that we've done are all online. So you can, um, you can listen to them online if you'd like. And the notes are all online. So you guys here and present, you, you should have had got some notes when you came in. And for you guys online, uh, the notes are online under cachurch.ca under classes. You can, you can get the notes. Uh, but today we're going to carry on in our uh, third study on, uh, on the book of Judges. And this is going to be fun. And then we're just diving in. We're diving into the Judges. So let me, uh, let me give, begin with prayer and uh, we'll just jump right in. Lord, we uh, come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. On our own, we bring nothing to the table. We live, we breathe, we have our being because of you. We are completely dependent upon you. And so we wait upon you with reverent and submissive hearts for you to speak to us tonight through your word. And so take your word and, and speak it and press it into our hearts. May it land on um, fertile soil and that your word would grow and transform within us, transform us from within. So we become the uh, women and men that you have created us and redeemed us to be. So we lift up tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, let me just ask you right from the beginning, how many of you have heard of Samson? Hands up. How many of you heard of Gideon? That's good, two for two. Barak? Othniel? <laughs> yeah, I guess some of you guys done your reading, so that's why you, you know Othniel. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to realize that uh, probably the worst judge is the most well-known, that would be Samson. And uh, the least well-known is probably the best judge, and that's uh, Othniel. And I, I find it interesting because when you're looking at leadership, our hearts are often drawn uh, to the worst leaders or, uh, yeah, yeah, we're often drawn to, uh, to the scandals um, rather than uh, leaders that make it faithfully towards the end. And so one of the themes actually in the book of Judges, and we touched on this over the last two weeks, is that, um, is that one of the key themes is leadership. And it's a theme that we're going to come back to not only this evening, but every week we're going to talk about leadership because I think you could do a whole, whole um, course on the nature of leadership looking at the book of Judges. 
but what I'd like you to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to just talk among yourselves. Again, we're, we're socially distanced. Some of you are in bubbles. That's okay. Lean across the pew. Talk to each other if you're, if you're comfortable doing that. I want to ask you a simple question. And the question is this. What are the marks of a good leader? What are the marks of a good leader? And in your opinion, which leader captures these characteristics the best which leader in history now you can't say jesus because we all say okay jesus is probably going to be our choice but let's say other than jesus and other than biblical character biblical you know people in the bible which leader in history do you think captures these qualities of the best and so what are the qualities of a good leader like the marks of a good leader and which leader do you think this guy really has it okay so I'm going to break our Zoom people into little groups. Remember, Zoom breakout rooms are always awkward. So just deal with it and lean in and somebody take the lead and talk about the marks of a good leader and the best leader. Now, I'm going to only give you probably three or four minutes to do this. So don't take too long. Okay. So here you go. I'm going to break you into groups. Uh, sign automatically. Do, hey, you guys can see how I do this now. Eh? Yeah. Five, four groups. Three, five, in my group. Um,
something weird. And people say, I saw people going like this. I'm like, why are they? I can't hear me. All right, now you can hear me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what are some characteristics of a good leader? What's that? Oh, Gandhi would be a—he would be an example of one. Yeah. Well, yeah. What was it about Gandhi that uh, made him a good leader? There's a humility to him. Okay, good. So one of the characteristics is humility, and it's personified in a guy like Gandhi. Okay, good. Charisma. Yeah. If you don't have a charisma are people really going to follow you? We're talking about Tom Brady, some of the football players that they have that charisma that people just, you know, they gravitate around them. Yeah. Motivator. Yeah. Motivator. They have to motivate um, you to do whatever the task has to be. Right. Integrity. Puts you to the limits. Yeah. And what did you guys say? Integrity. Integrity. Yeah. Integrity because yeah, their, their character matters. Hmm. Now it's interesting because you have leaders that are effective leaders, but don't necessarily have good integrity. We can we don't have to say examples. I mean, we can say. <laughs> are they truly good leaders? There's many in history uh, we can think of. Yeah. But David, are they truly good leaders, or do people just follow them? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are. If people follow them and they get where the leader said they were going to go then they're good leaders. Mm. <laughs> they may not be great examples of good character, but mm. they, they got you from here to there and people followed them. They inspired them to get there and they get there. Um, but maybe there's a character issue. I don't know. Because the, the reason why I say this is because in our time, when we look at judges, we are going to come across different kinds of leaders. Some of the leaders that we're going to look at are really effective leaders. But their character isn't all that great. And I think you and I can think of leaders, people that get the job done and people follow them, but their character may not be that great. It's fine, but when we think of leaders, especially as Christians, we think of some character uh, characteristics, you know, humility, um, integrity, motivation uh, delegation i never heard delegation delegation is, is a characteristic at all someone who, who gets people involved right respect yeah 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 absolutely cool um well leadership runs throughout the book of judges and uh we see this because right at the beginning of the book of judges we were faced with the question who will lead who will go up right and at the very end of the book of Judges, in, in chapter 20, verse 18, we, we encounter the question, who will lead? Who will lead? And we encounter leader after leader. And the question becomes how they lead. And the quality of, the quality of leadership disintegrates as we make our way through the book. Even though, even though, Maybe their skill at leading, again, is, is, is still strong. But that, that's a whole interesting conversation. Um, but there's this growing realization that Israel needs a new kind of leader to, complete, to, to prevent it from falling into complete ruin. Uh, Barry Webb, in, our, in his book on uh, Judges, he says, God's people 
need good leaders, but they've always been in short supply. But in the Bible, we encounter good leaders. We see it with Moses and Joshua. After Joshua, the best leader we come across is Caleb, right? He's still part of that generation. He's getting old. And so a younger generation needs to take his place. And we read about a younger generation, a younger leader who takes his place. And this leader is the fellow named Othniel, a household name. If you're thinking of a kid's name, Othniel, call him Othie. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Othniel. (laughs) Neil? Yeah, Neil. You can just call him Neil. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, let's look at Othniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and we're going to look at uh, verses 7 through 11. Okay. Come on, Judges, here we go. Judges chapter 3, 7 through 11. All right. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishatayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rithatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against you. Ready? Cushan Rishatayim. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Okay. Who is Othniel? Well, he, apparently he was, he was Caleb's. Now, in, in this passage, um, in, in the actual Hebrew, it's, it's, it's not clear. Like, he's, he's related to Caleb somehow. But he represents the next generation of leaders after Joshua and Caleb. So he represents this new crop of leaders. And this is important because we've talked about this before, but every generation needs to look to the next generation of leaders, right? And uh, one of the things uh, I've always appreciated about Pastor Mark at this church is that he's always thinking about the next generation of leaders. And if you're familiar with the state of the church in North America, you'll know this. And it's not just a church. It's the same applies to all kinds of organizations. But there's, a, um, there's going to be a real changing of the guard in the next five to ten years. And the reason for that is uh, most of the boomers are, are retiring. And they're looking for the next generation to take over. Now, it's hard because I'm one of those guys. I'm kind of stuck in the middle generation. I'm, I'm, I'm a buster. What's a buster? You've probably never even heard of busters because there's, there's hardly, there's like seven of us, I think. Um, there's not many of us. And so you're actually looking at, I mean, a lot of organizations are looking at this next generation, but this next generation are probably in their 30s. And so 
you know, are they ready to take on leadership? And so there, there's this real concern that um, many organizations, a lot of churches are losing a lot of their leaders because they're, they're just either dying or they're retiring, right? And so the question always is, you know, what's going to happen next? Who will be the next generation to, uh, in this case, you know, to take, hold up the torch to carry on uh, um, leading God's church, right? And I, I like the fact, you know, Pastor Mark, he's always uh, thinking about the next generation. But if we don't do this, we're in trouble. My friend, uh, one of my friends who's a pastor, he's, he's, he's a little bit younger than I am. But he, uh, he sees his role as a linebacker, as a lineman. How many of you know football? Yeah, you know. Okay, Ken, help me out because I'll get this wrong. Because I used to say linebacker. It's the lineman is the one that prepares the way for the running back. Yeah, there you go. So a lineman, not a linebacker, a lineman is the one who clears away and the running back runs through and scores the touchdown. So as he says, as I get older, that I see that more and more as my role is to clear away space for this next generation to step up. And I like that. It's, it's a good image, even though I don't really understand football that much. But uh, it's, it's kind of cool. But let's look at our text. Let's look at what, what goes on in our text. Uh, in the story of Othniel, we, we begin our, our text tonight, and, it, and we begin with the need of a Savior. Look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Well, this is a constant refrain in the book of Judges, right? And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's a danger. We read that over and over again. And the danger is that our hearts get used to it. Well, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We need to be careful. We don't get used to this. Sin is not something. Evil is not something we should ever get used to. But we're back to the uh, overview that we walked through last week in the second prologue. It's a picture of willful disobedience and rebellion to the rule of God. And it, it's the beginning of a downward spiral into apostasy. But even at this point, things are not as bleak as they're about to become as we make our way through. Still, to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and, and, and it's interesting, and they forget God. That's an extra little thing. And they forget about him. is to bring disaster on your life. Uh, to, to willfully disobey God, to do evil in his sight, uh, will put their, this generation's lives at stake. And nobody's going to survive unless God rescues them. And uh, here we have a situation of those that God rescued out of slavery, because of their willful disobedience of God, they end up back in slavery. They end up back in slavery uh, to a different nation than Egypt, um, and they're seduced. And it says they were seduced by these gods, the gods of Baal, gods of Asherah. And I learned last week uh, that there's a, um, this one image of Asherah. We talked about this last week. But there's an image from the 10th century. And uh, she, Asherah is represented as this nude woman. And, uh, and it's an issue. And it's, again, it's the, these, these gods. These are gods of fertility and gods of, of, uh, 
of, of birth and those sorts of images. And uh, so sexuality was a big part of things. And uh, I find it fascinating that sexuality, that sex could be a distraction in our lives. It seems to be a running theme throughout most of human history. But what happens is they lose their vision and they lose their way and they're sold into the hands of a man named Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. Now, how does this happen? How do they, one of the questions I have when I, whenever, as I'm reading the book of Judges, is like, how do they fall into this? How, like, how do they, how do they fall into this where they forget Yahweh? And was it something that they decided to do or was it a slow fade? Or was it something that takes place over a long period of time? Could they see it coming, but they didn't have self-control to stop? And I find, I don't know about you, but I find people when they turn away from God, it's never a... It's always a slow fade. I've had some students of mine over the years um, who are quite alive to the ways of God and quite alive. You know, this, I teach at a college in Surrey and um, it's a Bible college. And I've had students that were just on fire for Jesus. Really, really. And then it's like the, uh, the serpent in the garden. And they, they ask, they start, to, well, did God really say, did God really mean, can I really trust and then step by step by step. And some of these people I've seen, they've just, they've forgotten about Yahweh. They are through willful disobedience are, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a step by step by step away. And uh, I find that concerning, even for myself. I need to be, to be very careful about this. Sometimes people, when they walk away from God, they think that they're moving towards freedom. They're like, ah, I don't have to worry about God anymore. I don't have to worry about walking in his ways. Freedom, baby. You know, it's like the prodigal son with the pocket full of money. It's like, hey, I'm free. And at first it may seem free. Hey, I can do whatever I want. But, but before long, those things that you're investing in, they begin to enslave you. Because whenever we walk in a way apart from the ways of God, our lives aren't going to work. They're not going to work the way they're supposed to work because God's the author of life. That's why we read in Deuteronomy, choose today. Are you going to choose a way of life or the way of death? And trouble will come. And if you worship a dead God, you will become dead. And the consequences, in this case, in the consequences of going our own way is judgment. Now, this is really important. There are two forms of judgment. There are two forms of judgment we come across in the Bible. And we need to get this. There's a judgment that's facing the world as a whole. There's judgment for those outside of God's covenant. That's why we need to be bold in proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors, to, our, to, to, to everyone, right? 
That's why we have alpha, alpha ministries, right? That's why we have, a, you know, we, we encourage people to share their faith. Because we read in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, now you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, right? Walking in the ways of the world. And it says this in Ephesians, it says um, that those outside of God's covenant are having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it says in Ephesians 2.12. And the word, and the word that's used to describe the final state of people walking apart from God is, is not a pleasant word. What's the word? hell and so there is that judgment and that runs through the bible those who do not bow their knee those who do not turn to god are lost but there's a second form of uh, judgment and those are for the and it's judgment for those who are within god's covenant uh, it's a different kind and the word that's used to describe this uh this situation is the word discipline it's, it's different. Discipline. Now, discipline is corrective, not retrib- um, it's not retribution. And so discipline is rooted in grace, is tempered by grace. Discipline, how many of you enjoy discipline? Like nobody likes discipline, right? Nobody likes discipline, but if you've ever learned an instrument, discipline is important, right? Uh, discipline, the goal of discipline is to restore us, to renew us, to bring us to maturity. Look at, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This is a very important passage. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 is right towards the end of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. And look what it says here in uh, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It says this, um, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so whenever we experience discipline, it is unpleasant, but it helps us what? It helps us avoid pitfalls in the future. It helps us grow in maturity. But what happens to those people who say, you know what? I don't even want to be disciplined. I want to have nothing to do with this. Well, maybe they they show themselves to not be children of God to never having been within the covenant. Now, this is important because in Judges, this, the lines between these two forms of judgment uh, we, we are, are not always that clear. Israel does experience discipline. 
they do experience discipline. But man, I'll tell you, there are some judges that come along and the response is almost more retribution than, than, than discipline. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. So how does God bring discipline to Israel in this passage? Well, through a guy. And what is his name? You guys say it. <laughs> Krishan Rasp- Rasputin, yes, you know. <laughs> Krishan Rishashtaim. Now, we, we're told that he comes on the scene and he enslaves Israel for eight years. Now, we don't know, we don't know much about him. Some scholars think he's an early Babylonian ruler um, from southern, you know, modern-day southern Iraq. Others think he's southern Egyptian or he's an Edomite from the area near the Dead Sea. Um, Barry Webb thinks he's Syrian. We don't know. What we do know is that he's a tyrant and he's bad news. Now, we know he's bad news. Why do we know he's bad news? Well, it's in his name. It's actually in his name. Not only is his name hard to pronounce, but it means something. The name Rishashtaim means doubly wicked. So his name is Kushan the doubly wicked. How would you like that as a name? Apparently he has a younger brother named the single wicked. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's his name. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think his parents gave it to him, but it's a name that somebody gave to him. Probably has to do with his character. Kushan the doubly wicked. Okay? So, what, I mean, the equivalent would be, you know, think of Jack the Ripper. Right? It's like Jack the Ripper. And he's, he's, he comes from a long line of tyrants and that carries on throughout history. In the, you know, think of Stalin, Pol Pot, Hitler, Idi Amin, Nero, all those guys. And his name is mentioned, as, as you heard me. It's not captured in the NIV as well, but in the ESV, you'll see it's, his name is mentioned four times in this short passage, four times. And, and the effect of it is to kind of strike fear into you. Kushan, the doubly wicked, is dangerous. He's evil. His name is to strike fear into your bones. When you hear Kushan Rishashtaim, it's, it's, it's like, you know, hearing Lord Voldemort, right? You're supposed to be like, ah, don't say the name, right? Um, it's, uh, it does, and he does a number on Israel, and he enslaves them for eight years. But it's interesting in all this, because this is, a bad, this is bad news, right? This is evil reigning for eight years. But even, even here, even with the situation of such a tyrant, we realize that evil is not the master of the world. God is, right? God is the master. What does it say? It says, and it says, therefore the anger of the Lord kindled against, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishashtaim, right? That God is behind here. That God is, God is part of the situation. That, they, that God, um, yes, this is not going to be easy, but God is still sovereign here. I don't know why my email suddenly came up. Hopefully I didn't have anything weird on my email. Um, so this disciplining judgment they experience 
is this consequence of idolatry. Those who serve foreign gods will end up serving a foreign ruler. And in this case, they have to serve him for eight years. And so they've experienced this disciplining judgment for eight years and, and until God raises up our first judge. And his name is Othniel. And before Othniel comes on the scene, what do we see? It says this. It says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And now we don't know what this means. What does it mean they cried out to the Lord? Did they say, Lord, we repent? Or, did it, was, or is it pain management? Is it, a, is it a, a, a yelp for help, right? Is it, a, what is it? Is it out of desperation? We don't know. But we do know that they're in a tough situation and they cry out to God. And that's never a bad thing. It's never a bad thing to cry out to God for help. And because here's the thing, when you cry out to God for help, regardless of your situation, God hears your cry. Right? I've shared this before, but I remember it was like 15 years ago, a fellow that I was meeting with and he was dying of cancer and he was a tough so-and-so, no interest in God. And uh, I said to him one time, and he was dying. And I just said, you got to yelp for help. You got to call out God for help. And he did cry out to God for help. I remember him on his hospital bed, or not hot, and it was in his home, but the bed was all set up with all the um, medicine and everything. And he just, you know, this tough guy who'd never called upon God in his whole life, just cries out to God, have mercy upon me. And he hears our cries. And so that's a big question. I mean, where do you turn when things are difficult? Where do you go when you realize that the gods you've been serving are now enslaving you? For Israel, somewhere along the line, they came to the realization that these Baals and these Asheroth are not helping. So they, they yelp for help. And God, because of his grace and because of his mercy, and don't forget that, especially as we dive our way into the book of Judges, because I'll tell you next week and the week after, we're going to come across some pretty violent scenes. Never forget God's compassion and his grace here, because God, what does it say? He hears her cry, and he raises up a judge to rescue them. And I think, you know, it's a question to ask yourself. I mean, what are some th areas in your life? You think about addiction, right? Think about, you know, things that are, you know, kind of doing a number on you, that are enslaving you. And it could be, you know, it could be shopping. It could be materialism. It could be pornography. It could be all sorts of things. Could, you know, it, it, what, what is addicting you? You know, what is an idol, right? What's a good definition of an idol? Anybody want to give it a shot? Anything, yeah, anything you love more than God, anything, yeah, you give ultimate meaning to. That's not God. And so an idol could be a really good thing. It could be your family, it could be your parents, it could be all sorts of things, right? But if it becomes ultimate, then it's an idol. And it will, and it will enslave you. Even something good, it will enslave you. And so a question that I've been asking this week as I've been preparing this is just wh where are the idols in my life and where do I need to cry out for help? 
Well, the guy who comes to the rescue, look at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Okay? The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rashashtaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. Okay. So what do we know about Othniel? We don't actually know a lot. Like, you don't actually get a sense of Othniel's personality in this story, do you? Which is, I think, one of the re- one of the one of the challenges. To, if we were, if we were, you know, okay, I'll speak for myself. Being, if I'm to be honest in this, Othniel comes across a little bit bland compared to the fellow we're going to look at next week. Um, he's a little bit bland, and part of the reason for that is that in this story, we don't have any deets. Now, some of you may not know deets is a cool way, it's a groovy way of saying details. Right, Laura? Right? I know, I know, I can speak your lingo. Like, so deets is a short way of saying details. Um, did you guys know that? <laughs> uh, well, there's no details in this story. There's no details. I mean, how did Othniel overcome Cushan the Death Eater? Like, how did, how did he overcome him? We don't know. Where was, where was the big battle fought? We don't know. Uh, which tribes took place? We don't know. Uh, how did Cushan the Doubly Wicked fall? Was there like this final battle where, you know, Othniel drew his sword and it's just, all right, it's just me and you, Cushan. You know, I'm going to take you down. I don't know, you, you know, trash talk, and he takes him down. Like, is that gladiator moment or something? We don't know. We get no details. And so is it any wonder that my guess is that if you've ever taught kids' church, you have never done the story of Othniel and Cushan, <laughs> right? Because it would be a short story. You know, kids, you know, here's Othniel, he's a judge, and here's Cushan, the doubly wicked. And the kids would be like, oh, cool. And Othniel wins. The end. Right? <laughs> really? That's it? It's, it's, not, it's not a great... Uh, we don't know. So what are we to make of this treatment of Othniel? I mean, he is one of Israel's most successful leaders. Well, here's a couple thoughts. A couple thoughts, and I think we actually do get an idea of some things about Othniel that, 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 that will show up. Okay. One is this. Could it be that the author of the book of Judges does not want to glorify Othniel? He does not want our attention to be placed on Othniel here. Yes, he saved Israel. But the reality is, it's not Othniel's initiative, we think. It's not his courage or his skill that's on center stage. Who's on center center stage? God, yeah. Yahweh's on center stage. The story is about the glorification of Yahweh. In fact, in every spiral downwards, we learn about God and his work, yes? Because here, like, the only thing the passage tells us is that God raises up this leader. God, the spirit of the Lord, is placed upon him. 
the Lord gave Kushan Rishashtaim into his hand. At the very center in all this is the Lord. Now, you, you can't see this, um, and neither can I. I have to read about this because in, in Hebrew, again, the way the Old Testament is constructed, it is absolutely brilliant. It is, it is just so carefully put together, almost, almost in terms of uh, in the structure. There's these things called chiasms, and we've talked about those before. Do you know what chiasm is? Chiasm is, you got A, A1, B, B2, B1, C, C1, D in the middle. And so in, in the Old Testament, it's, it's written in such a way that you have the little chiastic sections. And you have, if you knew the sections, if you knew how it was structured, you knew what the main point was. And so in this section, you actually have Kushan's name on both sides of a very important line. What's at the very center of this entire passage are, are, are the words, these words. Um, and he saved them. And so the whole, if you're to read it, like in our day and age, we do underline, bold, italics, or whatever. This is what you need to focus on. In Hebrew writing, they structure differently. They use these different literary devices to get your attention. And this chiastic structure is one of the ways. And if you look at it, how the whole passage is structured, is structured that the most important thing that we're to see are the words, and he save them. So the real story, the real hero, the real savior in the story is clear. It's not the judge, but it's God. It's God. And he saved them. The second thing that comes out is that maybe we're being given in this story a basic job description of what a judge ought to look like. What is the role of a judge? To deliver Israel militarily to bring judgment upon Israel's enemies, breaking their power, driving them out, and to bring Israel back to the ways of Yahweh. That's the role of a judge. And then at the very end of all this, the land will experience rest. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So in the upcoming stories, we get better ideas of how the judges operate, their strategies and the battles. But the, the key thing that I think that, that's trying to be emphasized in this passage is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God who is going to rescue his people. It is God who does the work. And Barry Webb puts it this way. He says, that's the key message of this passage. And everything is stripped back to basics to let that message stand out in all of its stark simplicity. But I think we could also know a little bit about Othniel if we do a little bit of digging. Okay, let's see what we can find out about Othniel in this. Well, we know Othniel is a good fighter. How do we know this? Well, I mean, you're going to say, well, because he won the battle. Okay. Um, but is there any other place that would tell us that he was a good fighter? Anybody online? Do we come across Othniel anywhere else? Yeah, chapter one. What, what happens in chapter one, Mike? Yeah, he captures the city. He shows himself to be a pretty good fighter. In chapter 1, um, we see that, uh, that he, uh, he captured Kiriath Safer, right? 
So he's, he's a fighter. So he, he's not just, you know, he's not a librarian that they're, they're picking up. He's, 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 a, he's a fighter, right? What else do we know? Well, we know that he married well. Who did he marry? Yeah, his niece. Which, hey, wait a second. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that in a second. Who did, but other than the fact that it was his niece, which raises all sorts of other questions. Um, who, who does he uh, marry? Caleb's daughter. Okay. Her name is uh, Aksa, I think. She's a believer. She's a godly woman. We learn about her in chapter one. And now this is significant. Why? Because we know what is one of Israel's problems that they're going to be facing. What is, what is their problem? Yeah, they start, they start marrying the Canaanites. They're marrying their sons to the Canaanites and they're marrying the daughters to the Canaanites. It's all sorts of intermarriage. And with that comes all sorts of idolatry. Not so Othniel, right? He marries into the family of Caleb. What's the third thing we know about him? Well, this is interesting. I'm not sure if this is in your notes because I think I just discovered this later, later on. <laughs> well, he's an outsider, actually. Do I have that in your notes? Oh, I do. Okay, look at that. Ethnically, he's an outsider uh, because he's a, he's a Kenizzite, like Caleb. Now, who are the Kenizzites? I actually had to do some research on this. Does anybody know? Nobody knows? Well, then I can say whatever I want. This is who the Kenizzites are. <laughs> um, the Kenizzites. Um, they were a tribe that existed in the land before the conquest. Um, they were possibly a Gentile group tribe that converted to, into the covenant. They wanted to join the covenant. Uh, because of their faith commitment, they're, they're brought into Israel, and they're actually adopted into the tribe of Judah. That's why when we see Othniel's name later on in First Chronicles, I believe, um, chapter 4, it, it has them connected to the tribe of Judah. Um, and, and this happens, though, because if you think about this, um, you could be part of Israel through descent, yes, but through residence, yes, through dialect, through religion, through, through different ways. Uh, Rahab would be another example. She's not a Judaite by descent, but she's counted as the tribe of Judah because she converts. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that the model judge that God raises up is an outsider brought in. Now, this isn't a surprise. He does this over and over again in the Bible, right? Does this with, uh, with uh, Ruth. Uh, who else does he do? He does this with, uh, you know, people who are on the outside brought in, right? And the Gentiles, he, he does this with me. You know, we're all grafted in, right? And so this guy becomes a model judge. Because God looks at the heart, right? And he sees to the heart of faithfulness. The other thing, the fourth thing, is that we know that Othniel is brought into the tribe of Judah, and that's significant, as we looked at, because Judah is a key tribe for leadership. And so uh, we see Judah playing a, a key role 
right up into Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, right? Number five, the fifth thing we know about Othniel is that he steps up and he overcomes the worst of the oppressors. He overcomes the doubly wicked tyrant. And what he did back in chapter 1, verse 13, he does again, but on a national scale. And he does this through God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit, which I think is just important for us to know that God overcomes evil by empowering his people to step up. That he will empower you to overcome evil, either evil in your life or evil that you're facing. And that's what he does here with Othniel. It's a work of the Spirit through him. And the last thing is this. We know that, that um, Othniel, he delivers Israel by working in tandem with God. Um, they, they act as one. In fact, it's, it's, it is interesting. Um, remember when I said right at the very center of those passages, it says, and he saved them? Like right at the very center of, the, of, of our passage, of our pericope of this, this paragraph, is and he saved them. It's not clear when it says and he saved them if it's meaning God or if it's meaning Othniel. And I think that ambiguity is intentional. I think ultimately it's God. But he's, he's pointing out the dynamic where you and I are walking in sync with God. It's kind of cool. And the Hebrew, I think, keeps it vague to show that there's an interplay. And we see this all throughout the Bible. There's an interplay between human agency and God's sovereignty. And, it's, and, and, and we experience life when we, when we keep in step with the Spirit, when we walk in accordance to his ways. The last thing is this, is that through this uh, tandem with God, victory is achieved. And what happens to the land? The land experiences what? Experiences what? rest. They actually experience rest. That's, that's a line. Now, that's important. When we see, and, and, and you're going to come across this over and over again. Whenever Israel defeats its enemies, and it says the land experiences rest. Um, what that doesn't, it's not saying, okay, well, hey, you know, the enemies are gone and everybody went, whew. We can rest. It's, it, it's, it's more important than that. And in fact, it's a very important term, this term rest. Um, we can't miss the significance. What does rest mean? This is, we. oh boy, we need to get this. This is exciting. First off, rest is a gift from God. It's not an achievement. You and I can't achieve rest. It is always a gift from God. Secondly, rest is the word that's used to describe the enjoyment that God um, gives to us when we receive his promise. Rest is the enjoyment of what God has promised his people. If you, we won't look at all these passages, but take a look at Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, you guys turn to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And you, you, you'll see how many times this shows up. Deuteronomy chapter 3, uh, verse 18, it says this. And I commanded you at that time, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over the arm, uh, over arm before your brothers, the people of Israel. Um, hang on, is that the one? I've given you this land to possess. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> where is it? Uh, only your wives and your little ones and your livestock. I know that you have much livestock which shall remain in the cities that I've given you until the Lord gives you rest to your brothers. As to you, they will also occupy the land that the Lord gave them beyond the Jordan. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Deuteronomy, same, same book, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9. It says this. For you have not yet come to the, to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 10. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from your enemies around, so you shall live in safety. And finally, in chapter 25, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around. So this picture of rest is really, really important. And they don't experience rest when they're wandering in the desert. Because that generation had forfeited the blessing. They didn't receive rest. Um, you see rest in Joshua's generation. And then you get intermittent rest in the book of Judges. But the key is this, is that rest is a gift from God. It is God's, when God delivers you, his desire is to bring you into a place of rest. And that leads us to the third point, is that God uses people to bring about rest. In this case, he, brings, he uses Othniel. And the fourth thing is rest is generous. Rest is always generous. How many years were they enslaved? Eight years. How many years did they have rest? Forty. Forty years, yeah. It's five times as long as their slavery and their oppression. And so God judges, yes, for sure. But his grace is always greater. The other thing is rest is concrete, is comprehensive. What does rest mean? Rest is, yeah, another way to describe it is, 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 is shalom. Is shalom. It is when the entire environment around you is at rest. Now, one of the books I've been reading recently is a book called um, Post-War by Tony Judd. And um, has anybody ever read that book? It's like this long, and I think I'm about this far into it. Um, it's on the history of Europe after World War II. And uh, one of the things that uh, was pointed out, if you look at the state of Europe at the end of World War II, it was a mess. We had no idea. I had no idea. Some of you older, you're, you're probably, yeah, you, you, you know. Europe was just an absolute mess. Uh, I was reading about Romania. Romania was an absolute mess afterwards. Uh, Germany, in 1945, there were 20 million homeless people. 20 million homeless people. And the land was just in chaos. But when peace came, especially in the West, not the East, but um, people could start doing business again. They could repair the roads. They can get the trains going. They could start growing crops. And, and then the land began to produce. And people experienced various degrees of shalom. And that's the picture here. It's this picture of, of, of comprehensive peace. When there's no war, the land will flourish. There's no refugees. Populations are moving around. People can, can set up and people can trade. And the land will flourish. And so the picture here, when the Bible talks about rest, is this picture of shalom, of well-being. But one of the things we see in the Old Testament is rest is always limited. 
Right? We know that Israel, they experience rest for 40 years, and then what happens? Can you guess? <laughs> it has something to do with them doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? And, and this becomes a running theme throughout the Old Testament. Um, you know, you have these judges coming, and even with the kings, the land doesn't experience rest. Uh, eventually, they go into exile, so there's no rest. And, and basically, as, as you go through the Bible, there's this longing, there's this longing, God, will you not intercede so that the land can have rest, so that we can experience rest? We want rest. We need rest. And then we read these amazing words. Oh, turn to cha Hebrews chapter 4, towards the end. Hebrews chapter 4. This is so good. Hebrews chapter 4. You know, begin in verse 8. It says this. Yeah, actually, you can read it earlier on. Because it keeps talking about the rest and the rest and the rest. You harden your heart. You don't experience rest. And then in verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, another day of rest that is to come. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into the, that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The rest that our hearts are longing for, the rest that, that is hinted at all throughout the Old Testament, that rest is perfectly captured in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our rest. And it's, it's through him, it's through him that, uh, that we experience the rest that the Bible talks about. It's in Jesus that we get shalom. It's in the one who is uh, the, 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 the leader who will never die, of the tribe of Judah, who defeats everything. He's, he's not just a better judge. He's a perfecter of our faith, the Savior, and the one who will offer us rest that will never end. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And so that rest, that, uh, and, you, and we're going to see it all through the book of Judges, all through the Old Testament, is this desire for rest, rest. It's embodied in the person of Jesus, because Jesus, because what's the issue? The issue why the Israel doesn't experience rest is, is sin and death. That's the problem. What does Jesus defeat on the cross? Sin and death. And now in him, we experience the rest that our hearts have been longing for. Isn't that cool? Let me uh, wrap up uh, our time. I want to look at... Uh, just how Othniel, um, he's quite an outstanding leader. Poor Othniel doesn't get a lot of, you know, press time, right? He doesn't get a lot of air time. Um, I mean, we see this, though. We see back in chapter one, Caleb, an older generation, making room for him to come on the scene. And, and Othniel is not just the first judge. He's actually the model judge in the book of Judges. 
He demonstrates what it means to step up, uh, to, um, to um, work in tandem with Yahweh, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, he steps up and he defeats Cushan, the doubly wicked, uh, the tyrant of the day, and gives the land rest for 40 years. So it's a pretty high bar. At this stage, we have a pretty high bar for our judges. And so the question is, at this stage, when we're reading the book of Judges, is, huh, Othniel did pretty good. I wonder how the rest of the judges will fare. Right? How are they going to do? Well, almost all of them, I'll give you a spoiler alert, they don't fare as well. They, they disappoint or fall short. And next week's going to be a little different. I mean, Ehud. Ehud's one of my favorites. Um, he is, I have to say. I, you're not supposed to have favorites, but he is my favorite. Why? Because I am left-handed. Because I'm left-handed. And Ehud's the left-handed person. But the problem is, I mean, you could ask, you know, okay, you know, if they're all going to fail, was a whole, you know, model of judgeship uh, a problem? Is that why God, you know, uh, gave Israel uh, a king? Well, maybe. I mean, why did Israel, why did the judges fail? Well, it, it's not so much the, the, the system of judgeship that was the issue. The issue was the, the judges, what did they do? They did what was right in their own eyes. They chose to do what was right in their own eyes and they did evil in the, in the sight of the Lord. And, and here's the thing, it doesn't matter if you have a, a monarchy or a, a, you know, a, a you know, liberal democracy or whatever, if you've got leaders, if your leaders are looking out for number one, if they're only doing what is right in their own eyes, yeah, You're jumping ahead. We can't talk about Ehud until next week. There's a big reason why he's left-handed. But we have to talk about that next week, right? Yeah, Michael, you're so anxious. But, but it's a good question. It is a good question. Um, the issue, though, the issue with the judges and with any kind of leadership is if you have leaders that are looking out for number one and, you know, going their own ways rather than the ways of God, then it's going, to have, it's going to be difficult for this leadership to have much success in the eyes of God. And so even after the judges, you have kings who have limited success. Then you have these prophets speaking to those in exile. And, and basically, as you make your way through the Bible, there's this, there's this growing sense. It's just like, who's going to get it right? Who's going to get it right? Which king is going to step up and finally get it right? And, and by the time you get to the intertestamental period, there's this clear sense among uh, the Israelites is that the only, the only way we're ever going to experience get it right is if God himself becomes king. Is that interesting? Only if God steps up as king as judge, as prophet, as priest. And we know he does so in the name, in, through his son, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who's a bringer of complete and permanent salvation. So it brings us back to our opening question, who will lead? Who will lead? Well, Othniel is our first leader. 
Jesus is the last. In Jesus, God has provided the ultimate Savior who will deliver us to a deeper or more permanent way than any other leader before. But before we get there, before we're always... And I was talking to a buddy of mine um, in England because uh, he's saying, how are you going to teach judges? And then, you know, what's going to be your theme? And I said, well, one of the things we have to do when we're reading judges is we constantly need to locate the story and point it to Jesus. That's how you read the Bible. That's how actually you read the Old Testament is you constantly have to draw. You look at what's going on here within the book, but you always have to draw a line, draw a line to Jesus. Because it, as you're making your way through Judges, your heart should be like, who is going to get this right? Thanks be to God, it's Jesus. Does that make sense? Let's take a few moments, just uh, if you have some questions. I mean, that, it's, uh, we covered, well, we just covered Othniel tonight. And next week, uh, it'll be Ehud, the uh, mystery man. Why is he left-handed? Um, any questions? Let me ask you guys uh, online, because you've been so quiet. Partly because I had your volume down, but um, any any questions that came out of this? Okay, keep thinking. I'll ask over here. Any any questions came out of this? Clear as mud. Comments even. Michael. Yeah. Othniel is a fighter, yeah. That's a great question. Michael asked the, the question, like, how did, you know, how, like, basically, how did Othniel step up to be the, the judge, right? Well, I mean, God called him. God raised him up. So what does that mean? Again, the details would be helpful. Uh, we don't know. But we know that he's proven himself. He married well. There's a connection with him and the, and the leaders of the previous generation with Caleb, right? And so there's, there's this continuity. And yet he's an outsider kind of being brought in. And God lays his hand upon him, raises him up, empowers him with the Holy Spirit to rescue Israel. But how that, I'd love to know the details. Like, how did you do this, right? Very light on the deets. Um, but, but I think that's intentional. I do think that's intentional to, to draw our attention to what matters in this case. And that is the fact that this is what God does. He raises up people and through his empowering, he will rescue them. That's, I think that's, one of the key things that the narrator of Judges, the, the writer, is trying to, to communicate. Again, you have to realize, and uh, this is something that uh, Bruce Walkie taught me back in the, in the 90s, and but uh, my good friend Ivan's always uh, uh, helping me uh, understand, is that these Hebrew writers, also at the Old Testament, they are absolute geniuses in terms of the way they write and the way they structure and the way they put things together, what they include, what they leave out, you know, it's all with a theological purpose. And you have to learn to read it in that way to understand, okay, what is actually the, what is the narrator trying to communicate by giving us no details and why details here? And those are, those are some really, I think when we learn to read that way, 
our experience of reading the Old Testament in particular becomes way, way richer. And that's where a good commentary is always good to have. What does Eugene Peterson say? He says, um, Christians should uh, read commentary, commentaries like uh, detective novels. I mean, we should, as we're reading the Bible, have a good commentary, like a, a lively one, because it helps you understand things. A lot of the things that we, I'm talking about in, the, in this class, I'm learning as I'm going along. And, you know, I knew a little bit before, but uh, I'm loving this because it's just like, huh, I did not see that. Huh, that's probably what. And so uh, it's, I would encourage you to do the same. You know, and if ever you are, if ever there's a particular book that you're interested in reading in the Bible and you want to know what is the best commentary, I usually have a rough idea of what it would be. And if I don't know, I know somebody to ask, but I have a pretty, just from working in the book industry, I know usually what the, the best commentaries are, but it's worth it. Like I, if you ever read the book of Psalms and you want to walk through the book of Psalms, uh, it's mandatory. Have Derek Kidner's two-volume commentary on songs. Daryl Johnson tapes them together, and he and as he reads them, and he just they are just they make your experience of reading the Psalms just so much richer because it gives you insights that you had never seen before. Oh, I'll give you his name afterwards. Yeah, D Derek Kidner. Yeah, it's good. Okay, had any cyber people thought of any questions? Any Calgary cyber people? I think there's quite a few. Friends from Calgary? Is it snowing there? <laughs> I have one student on Monday morning. She's uh, Zooming in because I'm doing church history and she's Zooming in from Winnipeg. I'm always making fun of Winnipeg, um, which is easy to do. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Then I'm going to say farewell to you cyber people. We'll see you next week and then I'll hang around here a little bit. Okay, sound good? Okay, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for... Um, that in Jesus Christ, we experience shalom, rest. That he is our rest. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you hear the cries of your people, that when we cry out, you hear us. And Lord, we pray that we would be um, men and women that would clear way for, uh, for new generations of leaders to step up, not hoard our positions of leadership, but instead make way, make room for others. Um, we pray that, um, that we would walk in the way of Jesus, which is to disadvantage ourselves to the advantage of another. And so that's our desire. Thank you for the life of Othniel. We lift him up. We thank you for him. He doesn't get a lot of press, so we were thankful for him. And uh, thank you for his faithfulness and for his willingness to be empowered by your uh, Holy Spirit. And yeah, and thank you for, for your word tonight, for teaching us uh, so many things through your word. We commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week over there. All right, David, see ya. David, I had a question. Oh, oh sorry. I have a question. I'm so oh, I sorry. almost said goodbye. No, it's not a question. Just about the commentary about the book of Genesis. Can you give me a name? Oh, yeah, yeah. Derek Kidner. Maybe I'll, I'll try to put it on the notes for next week. Okay. But Kidner is K-I-D-N-E-R. Derek Kidner. Oh, it's gold. Absolutely okay. gold. Thank you. Okay. See you. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.